In this week's episode of Shell Shocked, we'll be discussing the science of memory, including an interview with famed memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. And later, Marilyn will provide a good news report about a case of mistaken identity that resulted in the imprisonment of an innocent man, but ended with positive results. So if you're ready out there, get your memory systems recording and brace yourselves for Shell Shock. When Marilyn and I first decided that we were going to do an episode on the science of memory, it reminded me of a story that I heard recently about the introduction of the printing press. It turns out, according to this story, that pundits worried that literacy would destroy people's memory capacity. Wow. <laughs> After all, if everything's written down and people could just refer to the printed page, why would anyone ever bother to memorize anything? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Which is so funny because that's not the way it's turned out at all. But it reminds me of a story I once heard about Albert Einstein. According to this apocryphal story, someone asked him for his phone number and he went to look it up in the phone book. And the friend said, you're the smartest guy in the world and you don't know your own phone number. And Einstein supposedly replied, I never memorize anything I can look up elsewhere. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I've used that line a lot over the years. Wow, that's great. Um, it's funny because nowadays with cell phones, you know, people don't know anybody's phone numbers. I, yeah. I was thinking the other day and I was calling somebody and I was like, what is their phone number? This is something I should know in case of an emergency. Yeah, you know, memory is such a funny thing. There's so much research on it. And yet it's one of those things that the more research you have, the more questions you come up with, not necessarily answers. And I know that's generally true in a lot of the sciences, but it seems to especially be true with memory. We just don't know all that much about how we produce memories, what memory production looks like in the brain. We know that it must be chemically related. Uh, we know a lot of correlates, but we don't have a lot of answers. Yeah, uh, and things keep changing all the time. I think the most recent research that I had read was that individual memories are stored in individual neurons. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we're finding out more and more. But like you said, every time we find out something, more questions pop up. Right. And that there are backup systems, too. So that if you were to lose those neurons, then you could have a storage somewhere else of that same memory. It's just it's so interesting to me and baffling, especially the neuroscience uh, that we found out relatively recently. Um, there's this new research that's highlighting how vulnerable our memories are. And that has not been the the leading thinking on this subject. For, for decades, scientists generally believe that memories that have been consolidated are somewhat set in stone and unchanging, except, of course, for the possibility that you could forget memories or forget parts of the memory. But they believe that any memory that you recalled would pretty much be as solid and accurate as it was when you memorized it. And they also believe that the key to retaining accurate memories was to recall them as often as possible. But now both of those notions are being challenged. Um, for example, there's a neuroscientist at McGill University in Montreal named Karim Nader, and he's showing in his research that the truth about memory may be quite different. His studies are suggesting that our memories are vulnerable to being reconsolidated over time, and even more horrifying, that the more we recall them, the more likely it is that new incorrect information will be incorporated into them. You know, fascinating. I just it boggles the mind that you know these memories that you have could be completely different than the original memory. Right. Nader's work is in direct contradiction to work done by people like Eric Candle, who's a neuroscientist at Columbia University in uh, New York. Um, he's been doing research for over 50 years, Candle has, and he actually shared the uh, 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his breakthrough in research on short-term memory. But Candle believed 
and still believes, I'm sure, that memory production is like writing things on a pad with a pen. So while the ink is still wet, it's possible to smudge a word or two, but once the ink dries, you can read that piece over and over again with no possibility of change. If you lose that slip of paper and completely lose the memory, that's one thing, but as long as you know where the paper is, you're golden. But around 1999, Nader started doing some research with rats that contradicts that completely. What he did was he taught four rats that uh, if they heard a high-pitched beep, it signaled a mild electric shock. That part, as you know, is easy because rats can learn stuff like that after just a single trial. But after the conditioning, the rat would just freeze in place whenever the tone was played, waiting for the electric shock. So what Nader did was he waited a full 24 hours for the memory to consolidate in these four rats, and then he brought them back in and he played the tone to reactivate the memory signal, but this time he had injected a drug into their brain that prevents the neurons from making new proteins that would be necessary for creating a memory. What he predicted was that if memories are only consolidated once, the first time that they're created, the, the drug wouldn't matter because they had already created the memory. But if memories have to be at least partially rebuilt every time they're recalled, down to the synthesizing of neural proteins, then the rats given the drug might later respond as if they had never heard or never learned the fear. Turns out that's exactly what happened. These rats no longer responded to the tone. And this study completely contradicts Candle and others' standard conception of memory. But interestingly, it confirms work by people like Elizabeth Loftus, who's my interview subject for this episode later on, because what she's showing overall is that it's relatively easy to create new memories in people of things that never happened or to alter the memories they've already stored. And this would be predicted by Nader's research because it shows that these rats were re-memorizing every single time they brought up the memory. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like, you know, that... The rats, that memory of the rat had to, you know, was really powerful, the shock, you know, um, association there. And it's sort of the idea that people have that we wouldn't forget those, what we call flashbulb memories. Yes. You know, those emotional events um, like the Boston bombing or whatever uh, that uh, I will never forget where I was when I heard that or I will never forget this moment. And uh, for most common people out in the street, they can't fathom that they could forget that moment or that they could alter it and that they might be misremembering. Um, but I, I do believe they did studies right after 9-11 and they've had people keep coming in year after year and writing down exactly you know where they were when it happened, what they were doing. And like you said, uh, with Loftus's research, uh, they find that these memories are changing. So even very emotional ones where you think, no way, I'll never forget this. Unfortunately, uh, these memories do get altered. Anybody who's living here in the United States and was you know, over the age of five at that time probably remembers exactly where they were when they first heard of the attacks. Interestingly, even people who were there have apparently false memories of where they were, what was going on. People who were watching it on television came to believe that that first day they saw... The, both planes, right? Yeah, both planes going in. And it turns out that, no, that wasn't the case at all. Um, later on, they saw footage or they heard stories or what have you, but they couldn't possibly have seen that first plane flying into the World Trade Center on television that day because they didn't have that footage yet. Right. Yeah, so it's very good evidence of what they're misremembering. Yeah, and it makes you wonder because memory is such a personal thing for us. It's it's the story of our lives. It's the story of our experiences, and it tells us who we are. And when someone comes along and suggests that some of that might be false, I think it's a really personal accusation, and people don't like it. Yeah, I have a exercise that I have my students do when we do the memory chapter and I have them recall an, an emotional memory that they shared with someone else so I tell them you know if they were abducted by aliens by themselves they can't use that memory but <laughs> if they um, 
have one where you know somebody else experienced it with them they write down what happened the other person writes down what happened and then they compare and contrast and i'm always fascinated with any differences the student always says oh but i'm right yeah and she, and she or he was wrong it, it never fails to amaze me that you know their memory is exact and the other person is wrong yeah the possibility that somehow you could be wrong about something that you bring up in your mind that you can see in your mind's eye that's a terrifying prospect for us. So I think our natural response to that is to say, nope, can't happen. I'm right. They're mistaken. I think we're comfortable. We're all comfortable with the idea that we forget. But the idea that you remember something and that's not true, that's a different proposition altogether. Yeah. It, it's fascinating, though. It is. And, you know, another thing that this brought up for me was uh, whenever I have a friend who has a baby, um, the first thing that I buy them is the entire set of DVDs of Schoolhouse Rock. And so that's for the kid. And when the kid gets a little older, that's how they're going to learn a noun is a person, place or thing. I'm just a bill and all those things. And so it brings up this subject of memory with music. When it's set to music, if you play that song, just the melody, people will start remembering that a noun is a person, place, or thing. It's just such an easy way to remember things. I'm fascinated by that, too. Yeah, clean up, clean up, you know, that Barney's <laughs> annoying song. And, yes. um, you know, anytime I turn on 80s or 90s music in the car and I haven't heard something in years, all of a sudden I can sing every single word. Yeah. And, you know, I can't remember what I wore last week or what I ate for dinner last week or something trivial like that. But bring out a song that I haven't heard in ages and I have no problem remembering. Have you heard about these people who have superior autobiographical memory? Yes. Like Mary Lou Henner? Yeah. yeah. From Taxi, the actress from Taxi. They have perfect recall of every day of their lives. Pretty much everything. They remember the weather, the day of the week, what they had for lunch. It's incredible. And it makes me think, how much of my life do I actually remember? I don't think I remember very much of it. I know. I don't either. But you also told me, I believe, that um, they also remember all the bad things that happened to them. Yes. And there's one woman in particular, Jill Price. Uh, she's the author of a book called The Woman Who Can't Forget. She seems tormented by this condition. Uh, unlike the other half dozen or so that I've seen interviews with uh, of people who have this condition, she re-experiences the emotion of the memory every time it's brought up. And so even the tragic, embarrassing, you know, terrifying events of her life, she has to relive them every time the memory gets brought up. So I would not want to have that condition, obviously. But I do kind of want to know what happened every day of my life. <laughs> I can't remember, you know, when I think about it, what it was like to be 10 or, you know, even 15 or even, you know, just a few years ago. Yeah. Do you remember your teacher's names? I did for a while and now I can't. Grade um, school. Mm, no. I don't no. either. I remember certain ones. Mrs. Barrett, because she was my kindergarten teacher and behind her back, we called her Barrett the Parrot. <laughs> <laughs> because she had this cockatoo-like hairdo. And there's the rhyming again. Yeah, there it is, yeah. Mrs. Joke was my third grade teacher. It's an unusual name, and she was the first Japanese person I ever knew. And I was fascinated by her. And so that stands out in my mind. But the rest of them, I don't know who was my second grade teacher, who was my fourth grade teacher. I have no memory of that whatsoever. My mother doesn't remember any of her childhood. Really? No, she says, I have no memory of anything until about high school. Wow. I, and uh, does she have uh, pictures to look back on? No, not many. No. Okay, no. yeah. And and what, what's interesting is if we do remember, uh, you know, before high school, do we really remember or is it that, you know, pictures my mom has taken, stories my mom has told right. me, that, that, um, have, that those have become memories rather than do I really have those memories myself? You know, yes. these are all these questions that come up when you start studying the research about how easy memory is reconstructed. Right. The, uh, the difference between implicit and explicit memory comes up as well in this discussion. Um, when you're born, the area of your brain, as you're, you well know, called the hippocampus, is not fully functional until around the age of three years. So up until that time, we're learning skills through implicit 
memory production, but we're not remembering things like the movie theater of the mind production through explicit memory. But sometimes you'll run across people, or at least I have, who say, no, no, I remember being an infant. Right. And I say, well, I know that it probably seems that way. No, no. <laughs> I actually met one woman who said she remembered being in the oh, womb. Oh, goodness. Your brain's not even and formed at that point. The areas yeah. required for memory aren't formed at that point. I said, what do you remember? And she said, I remember the sounds. I remember my mother's heartbeat. And I said, don't you think that that could possibly just be you know, fantasy? No, no, I absolutely remember it. And we're back to, like, with your students saying, nope, those other people are wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm right. I remember it. But, of course, we know that that can't possibly be true. We have all the the neurological evidence. We have the, you know, anecdotal evidence. At a certain point, you just have to go, well, that's great, and walk away because you can't convince someone. Right. I also find it very interesting, you know, what kind of memories you lose uh, through certain diseases. And I remember watching a video clip about a gentleman who had uh, some kind of uh, degenerative disorder that was eating away the neurons in his temporal lobe. Mm -hmm. And when they showed him pictures of animals, the only words he could, or the only animals he could remember were dog and cat. And so when whatever animal they showed him, it was either a dog or it was a cat. Wow. And, and he had lost the words for all other animals. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the documentary Alive Inside. No. Um, it just came out recently, and it was put together by a social worker who wanted, again, we're bringing up music, um, to bring music to Alzheimer's patients. Mm. and But not just music, but their individual type of music. And there is this video of this gentleman who they put pictures of his family um, on his tray, and he just has his head down, is very depressed. And they say, you know, who's this? And he just doesn't answer, um, you know, mumbles and doesn't really uh, respond. And then he really liked Rob uh, Calloway. Is that mm. his name? Rob Calloway, I believe, in the 40s. And so they put someone on uh, music of his on the iPod and then play it for him. And all of a sudden, he's smiling, his head picks up, he's moving it around, and he's talking about all the picture, all the people in the pictures and telling stories about them. It was, it, it really, they, they came alive. Wow. It, and uh, with the music. And oh, so, and it's, it's Cab Calloway, a jazz Cab, singer. thank you. Yeah. Thank you, yes. So that seemed to tap into something in his mind that allowed him access to some of those memories. Yeah, so they... Wow. They were still there, and for some reason he couldn't access them. And the music was was uh, was brought him back. Wow. Our guest interview today is with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Dr. Loftus is a cognitive psychologist and a distinguished professor of social ecology and professor of law and cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. She's perhaps best known for her groundbreaking research demonstrating the fallible and malleable nature of human memory, especially in the areas of the misinformation effect, eyewitness testimony, and the nature and creation of false memories. She's the recipient of numerous academic awards and is a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiries Executive Council. She's also served as president of the Association for Psychological Science, the Western Psychological Association, and the American Psychology Law Society. Although she's the author of numerous books, I have to say my favorite is Witness for the Defense, The Accused, the Eyewitness, and the Expert Who Puts Memory on Trial, which she co-wrote with Catherine Ketchum. Dr. Loftus, thank you so much for being on Shellshocked. Oh, yes, my pleasure. So let me start out by asking you, how did you first get interested in memory research? Oh, gosh. Well, that goes way back uh, when I was in graduate school. I actually uh, took a course uh, with a professor who was starting to do some memory research and asked me if I wanted to participate in this research project. And so, you know, way back when I was doing this, you know, early work on, on semantic memory, memory for words and concepts and basic general knowledge about the world. Uh, and... It was really quite a bit later, actually, after I'd already finished my Ph.D., that I thought, you know, I really would like to 
study something that has more immediate um, social re and relevance and practical applicability. And and so it was then that I combined my my experience in the study of memory with my interest in legal cases and started studying people's memories for crimes and accidents and other legally relevant events. So I guess that's how it happened. The definition of memory that's included in the general psychology textbook that I use is simply the persistence of learning over time. Would you add anything to that definition that most people probably don't know about memory? Well, you know, I think that the persistence of learning over time only tells part of the story. Um, it, it, one of the things that we know about memory is it doesn't work like a recording advice. You don't just kind of record the information and play it back later. The process is much more complex, and it, it actually involves a constructive quality. So when we try to remember something, we're taking bits and pieces of experience, but sometimes pieces that we acquired at different times and places and bringing it together to construct what what feels like a memory. And, and, and this is part of the reason why errors can creep into memory because of the constructive nature. Some of the studies you've published on memory have shown that it's possible to actually create memories, false memories in people in the lab. How do you go about doing that? It depends on the particular study. In, in, in some of my studies, we will show people a, a simulated crime or an accident, and then we'll suggest to them details that were different from the way things really were. Uh, we'll suggest to them that the car went through it a yield sign instead of a stop sign, for example. And when we suggest mistaken details, we can very often get people to believe and remember that they saw those details that were only suggested to them after the fact. Um, but later studies, in later studies, we showed you can go a whole lot further with people and you can actually plant entirely false memories into the minds of people for, for whole events that never happened. So are you saying this is something we all experience at some point? Actually, I believe that we're all, certainly we all possess a, a malleable memory, a one that uh, virtually all of us possess this malleable memory that is susceptible to potential contamination. Uh, and, you know, out there in the real world, we, we pick up misleading details if we talk to somebody else about some event that um, we might have jointly experienced and that somebody else mentions something that's uh, erroneous, we can adopt that as our own memory. Um, if we get interviewed by somebody who's biased, we can be led to believe that events happened differently than they really did. There are lots of situations where our memory is exposed to erroneous information that can contaminate. And lots of times it doesn't even matter very much, but when somebody's liberty is at stake, then it matters very much. Speaking of that, I have a personal connection to this topic. I grew up in Bakersfield, California, where back in the 1980s, about three dozen people were arrested and, as it turns out, wrongfully imprisoned after being accused of ritualistic torture and sexual abuse of their own children. Oh, the famous Kern County cases. Yes, and it was such yes. a shocking case that Sean Penn made a documentary about it a few years back called Witch Hunt. Have we learned anything since the 1980s about the interrogation tactics that we use? Well, I think we, we've learned quite a bit, and, the, and, and a large number of articles have been published about biased and suggestive questioning and how it can be particularly dangerous with young children and how it can and did and, and, and still does lead to the development of horrific false memories in the minds of, of people that can ruin other people's lives. But, I mean, I think we're waking up to the problem here in the United States, but unfortunately in other parts of the world, uh, and still here, you are seeing people accused uh, based on memories that have been either inadvertently, well, let's give people the benefit of inadvertently, planted in the minds of other people. 
there have been a lot of high-profile cases over the years that relied upon eyewitness testimony, for instance, with questionable impact. Do you think we should disregard eyewitnesses, or is there some rubric we can use to evaluate the statements that they make? Well, first of all, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of eyewitness testimony, and, and, and you know perhaps we wouldn't want to, because some eyewitness testimony is, is very reliable, and, and some, you know, Serious crimes depend on relying on on good eyewitness testimony to get those crimes solved. But there are lots of things we can do along the way to minimize the problems of contaminated memory that that leads to these uh, injustices. And 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 these things can take place at all kinds of different points in the legal process. So greater care in interviewing witnesses in the first place. Um, you know, greater attention to how uh, procedures are implemented that try to extract information from witnesses. I mean, a lot of little decisions need to be made. Like when, when, when you bring a witness to a police station and you want to show them a lineup, how should you construct that lineup and what kind of instructions should you give to a witness? And uh, how do you avoid um, giving the witness uh feedback after some identification because you don't want to contaminate the witness, you don't want to artificially inflate the confidence, then there are things that can be done in the trial. So some states are implementing uh, the use of uh, more detailed jury instructions that can educate uh, juries about the nature of memory. Uh, some places are seeing greater use of expert testimony as a way of educating the jury about about the factors that affect memory. So these are just a few of the things that are being implemented or considered at different places across this country. One of the people who seems to be on trial these days, at least in the court of public opinion, is NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams. Um, he was making headlines lately for a number of false statements he included in his news stories, especially about his time in Iraq as a war correspondent. For those who are listening who don't know, he apparently claimed that the Army helicopter he was flying in was shot down by ground fire, which was later shown to not be the case, which he also admitted. The immediate conclusion by many seemed to be that he was just blatantly lying to embellish his story. Do you think there's an alternative explanation here? Oh, you know, I absolutely do. I, I mean, he, uh, yes, he, he, he was reporting as recently as the, uh, this year that the helicopter that he was in was hit by this ground fire. I don't know if he would go, went so far as to say it was shot all the way down, but it, that it was hit. Um, the actual events that happened in, back in 2003, uh, approximately, revealed that uh, another helicopter was hit and he arrived on the scene to see this uh, damaged helicopter some hour, an hour or so later. Uh, and so the question is, how did, how did his memory kind of morph into, I saw another helicopter be hit too, and mine was also hit. And, you know, I think that um, just a, a distortion of memory, a distortion of memory in a way that maybe makes him look a little bit more interesting, that his experience was a little more harrowing. Uh, these are the kinds of distortions that, that lots and lots of people make. And so I would, I'd say give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, what's happened afterwards with this deepened investigation is we apparently find out that he's, he's done this on some other occasions as well, but that still doesn't mean that he's a deliberate fabricator. He, he could be a serial memory distorter. And he's not the only one. I remember hearing you talk about a case with Hillary Clinton doing something very similar. Yes, actually, the Hillary Clinton example you know, was my, my favorite example before Brian Williams uh, uh, came on the scene with his distorted memory or, or whatever you uh, think it might be. But it wasn't that long ago when Hillary Clinton was running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency that she talked about landing in Bosnia under sniper fire. And subsequently, photographs and videos would reveal that, in fact, that didn't happen. It was a very peaceful greeting ceremony. And she came forward with, a, a you know, an apology. She said, I made a mistake. That proves I'm human. Uh, and it's, it was interesting because that seems to have been accepted, which I think is fine. 
But um, the world has not been as kind to Brian Williams, who basically has been suspended from his job. And in both of those cases, I think you've got people who are traveling a lot. With Brian Williams, you have someone who's under you know, war conditions. Uh, do you think there are certain conditions under which we're most likely to be vulnerable to false memory? Well, I, I would think that if you have lots of, uh, lots of experiences and lots of things happening in your life, lots of uh, traveling and lots of conversations, that it would be especially easy to mix up details of things that may have happened to you uh, at different occasions, at different places, different times. I, I think you've given us a lot to think about, and I want to share a personal story. Since learning about your research, I came to recognize that I have a false memory. I remember standing on the front porch of our home holding my grandmother's hand. I had to have been three years old because my parents were bringing home my baby sister from the hospital. Never happened. And there's great well, how detail. How did you know it never happened? <laughs> how did you find out it never happened? I talked to my mother about it, and she told me I was out of my mind, that that never happened, that I wasn't even home when the baby came home, and that my grandmother never babysat us. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. So uh, I'll, uh, I, thank God you still have your day job. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you and find out what you're up to these days? Oh, well, I have a, my University of California, Irvine website has just a whole lot of articles. People can just help themselves to any of these articles uh, that will describe some of these memory experiments and some of the memory issues in a whole lot more detail. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure. You. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Science Report. For me, the field of psychology has always existed as two interlocking worlds. One is the lab, where the science of human behavior is teased apart, examined, classified, and hopefully understood. In the other, the principles of behavioral science play out in the real world, in our lives. It's in this environment that the most powerful effects of this field of study can be seen. Sometimes, if we're lucky, the application of psychological knowledge can improve society and make our lives better. Unfortunately, mistakes are made, and when that happens, the consequences can be devastating. One such example can be found in the claims of satanic ritual abuse of children beginning in the early 1980s. In a series of cases across the country, accusations by children led to hundreds of innocent people being charged with the most vicious crimes imaginable, torture, exploitation, and sexual abuse of children, sometimes accompanied by a cult or satanic ritual. The town I was born and raised in, Bakersfield, California, is a rural setting in Kern County, with a rich history of agriculture stretching back to the Dust Bowl days, when displaced and ruined farmers immigrated with their families in search of a better life. Even today, a large percentage of Bakersfieldians have direct lineage to Oklahoma, Kansas, or North Texas, a fact that's still reflected in the strongly conservative social and political attitudes there to this day. Church attendance is still very high, and Republican politicians in the state are assured an easy victory in the county each election year. These facts made Bakersfield a ticking time bomb back in the early 1980s one that finally exploded when Debbie and Alvin McEwen were arrested on charges that they had molested their own children on multiple occasions. According to the children's step-grandmother, Mary Ann Barber, a woman with a history of psychosis and treatment for mental illness, the children had disclosed to her that they had been taken to motel sex parties, shared with other adults for sex, and even hung from hooks while being molested. 
Eventually, these accusations would spread to friends of the McEwens, other relatives, and to other people who dared to speak out on their behalf. The atmosphere of Kern County quickly transformed itself from bucolic farming town to one of intimidation, fear, and suspicion that would end with more than three dozen innocent people being imprisoned, given hundreds of years each for crimes they never committed. Although these accusations seemed beyond belief, this wasn't the first such story to be told. Only two years earlier, a book entitled Michelle Remembers had rocketed to the bestseller list. It chronicled the repressed memory therapy undergone by Michelle Smith with the help of her psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder. In the book, Smith reveals details of abuse in over 600 hours of testimony while under hypnosis. Her claims were that she was a victim of sexual abuse and a satanic cult that her mother forced her to attend. Smith alleged that she was abused for the first time in 1954 at the age of five. In this 81-day ritual, she claims leaders of the cult summoned the devil himself and Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Archangel Michael later removed all of her bodily scars as well as all memory of the traumatic events, quote, until the time was right. Smith claimed that the abuse continued throughout her childhood, during which she was sexually assaulted, locked up in cages, and even forced to witness a number of murders of adults and babies, sometimes being covered in the blood of these victims. Smith and Pazder consulted a variety of church authorities, and were even interviewed by representatives from the Vatican, all the while their story being taken at face value, accepted uncritically as fact. Their efforts were so successful, in fact, that Oprah Winfrey interviewed Smith on her show some years later. The only problem with the story is that it apparently never happened. Many now believe the whole thing was the result of a mixture of fantasy, leading questions on the part of Pazder, a general hyper-religiosity on the part of Smith, and a pseudo-therapeutic technique known as recovered memory therapy, in which methods such as hypnosis, guided imagery, and sometimes sedatives are used to help patients retrieve lost or repressed memories. These techniques are generally considered to be quackery by scientists today, but they were very much in vogue in the 1970s and 80s. So it was shocking, but not unheard of, when local papers in Bakersfield began running stories of adults being accused of very similar crimes against children. The fact that these were their own children just made them seem all the more reprehensible and it seemed like a career-maker to local district attorney Ed Jagels, a tough-on-crime prosecutor who once used California's Three Strikes Law to send a man to prison for 25 years for stealing a packet of mini donuts. Although many of the convictions were later overturned, there were three tragedies in the Kern County molestation witch hunt. The first are the adults who were imprisoned, some of them for decades, for crimes they never committed. The second is the general public, who are now in some ways more in danger of allowing real cases of child abuse to go unnoticed, since their opinion of such cases is strongly influenced by the crying wolf perception of past accusers. And the third, and perhaps most tragic of all, are the children, who will have to find a way to live with the knowledge that they helped send their own parents to prison and some of whom still believe they were molested, showing the malleable nature of human memory under these strenuous conditions. As a former Bakersfieldian, two facts stand out for me in the Kern County cases. One is that the judge in the main cases, whose in-court decisions handicap defense attorneys at every turn, sometimes bringing gasps from those present, lost his bid for district attorney against Ed Jagels partly due to public perception that he had been soft on child molesters. The other is that the social workers who originally questioned the children for hours upon hours had recently been through a district training program that included excerpts from Michelle Remembers, the book that began the witch hunt in the first place. The good news is that we now know much more about the vulnerability of human memory and law enforcement officials, as well as attorneys, are more aware than ever how to question people, especially vulnerable populations like children, without altering their testimony. 
So let's hope that the world of the psychology lab continues to inform the real-world application of behavioral science so that we can avoid such injustices in the future. Have you heard the good news? Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and I'm bringing you the good news. In this week's story, I'll tell you how two very unlikely people, a woman and the man she accused of a rape, became best friends and have made it their mission to speak out about the fallibility of memory and eyewitness identification. Let's start at the beginning. In 1984, Jennifer Thompson was 22 and a student at Elon College in North Carolina when a man broke into her house during the night and raped her. As he assaulted her, she memorized his face, his voice, everything she could about him. She intended to survive, and when it was over, she wanted to put him in prison for what he did. After the rapist assaulted her, she offered to make him a drink, and when he incredibly agreed, she fled the house, wrapped only in a blanket. A couple living next door led her into their house and called the police. Just hours after her ordeal, after a doctor swabbed her for semen samples in a hospital, she sat in a police station with Detective Mike Golden, combing through photos, working up a composite. She picked out his eyebrows, his nose, his pencil-thin mustache. Her description seemed to fit Cotton, who was her same age. He had had several minor scrapes with the law, and several years earlier, when he was 16, he had sneaked into his girlfriend's bedroom through a window and was caught snuggling with the girl by her mother. The mother called police, and Cotton was charged with several offenses, including breaking and entering and sexual assault. The charges were all eventually dismissed, but Cotton's name and mugshot were now on file. Investigators showed Thompson a number of photos of possible suspects. She now knows that her mind was trying to find the person in the group who most closely resembled the sketch she had helped the police artist draw. With six photographs in front of her, she was consciously trying to figure out the person in the photographic lineup that most closely resembled the sketch, as opposed to the actual attacker. She picked Cotton. Later, police put him in a physical lineup, and she picked him again. It was 100% certain, she said. After a two-week trial and only 40 minutes of jury deliberation on January 17, 1985, the day Cotton was sentenced to life, Thompson toasted her victory with champagne. In prison, Cotton spent his nights writing letters to lawyers, newspapers, anyone who would listen. He spent his days pounding the punching bag. He joined the prison choir. He read the Bible. He tried to believe what his father kept telling him, that someday justice would prevail. One day, about a year after Cotton was convicted, another man joined him working in the prison kitchen. His name was Bobby Poole. He was serving consecutive life sentences for a series of brutal rapes, and he was bragging that Cotton was doing some of his time. Cotton hated Poole, even planned to kill him. Cotton's father begged him not to. If you kill Bobby Poole, then you really do belong behind these bars. And when he learned he had won a second trial, his heart filled with hope. The reason that he won another trial was that another woman had been raped just an hour after Thompson. Same Burlington neighborhood, same kind of attack. Police were sure it was the same man. An appeals court had ruled that evidence relating to the second victim should have been allowed in the first trial. At the new trial, witnesses would get a look at Poole, who was subpoenaed by Cotton's lawyer. Finally, Cotton thought he would be set free. He had forgotten the power of Jennifer Thompson. During that time, Thompson's memory cemented Cotton's image as that of the attacker. Back on the stand, she looked directly at Poole and directly at Cotton. Cotton is the man who raped me, she told the jury. The second victim was less convincing, but she pointed to him too. Ronald Cotton hung his head. He had no words left inside him. The court felt silent as he was sentenced to a second life term. The years in prison were a nightmare. He just had to keep himself together, which wasn't easy at all. 
He was missing his family and his loved ones. He took it day to day and hoped that true justice would prevail and open a door for him. Cotton's break came in 1995 when he was watching the O.J. Simpson trial on television. Attorneys and investigators kept talking about DNA evidence, something he had never heard of before. He contacted his attorneys who were able to recover one tiny sample of sperm from the rape kit that had been used to treat Thompson 11 years earlier. There was enough DNA in the sample to prove Cotton was innocent and Poole was guilty. And just like that, Cotton was a free man. It was like a dream come true. He couldn't believe it. The warden of the penitentiary called him in his office and told him he was going home the next day. He told him, please don't pull my leg. It's already long enough. But it was true. He finally went home to be with his family and loved ones. Cotton then began the difficult task of beginning a new life. He got some money, $5,000, in compensation from the state of North Carolina, but he also worked two jobs to get himself back on his feet. As for Thompson, she was torn apart by the revelation that her dead certain testimony had imprisoned an innocent man. I was devastated. I really was. One of the things that is really important is I never felt any shame being a rape victim. I knew that I had been innocent that night. I now felt this debilitating guilt and shame over 11 years of a man's life that was just gone. She lived with her mental torment for two years before finally reaching out to Cotton. Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton met for the first time at a church not far from where Jennifer had been raped. She physically couldn't stand up, she says. She started to sob. She looked at him and said, If I spent every minute of every hour of every day for the rest of my life telling you that I'm sorry, can you ever forgive me? He did the one thing that she had never imagined. He started to cry, and he said, Jennifer, I forgave you years ago. Thirteen years after her attack, Jennifer just wasn't angry anymore. Parts of her that had been broken for so long, she could feel them fusing again, she says. It was like she was literally looking at grace and mercy. He was sitting in front of her. Grace and mercy. Ronald gave her back her life that day. In the years since that first meeting, Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton have become friends. She has asked him how he managed to forgive her for a mistake that stole over a decade of his life. And he says that if he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison, if he was going to die there, he had to find a way to live without anger and bitterness. He learned how to forgive so that he could survive. Despite Ronald's forgiveness, it would take years before Jennifer was able to forgive herself. Indeed, she forgave her rapist, Bobby Poole, before she forgave herself. I forgave Bobby Poole because I watched Ronald forgive me, she says. I wanted that same peace. I didn't want to live in hate and anger anymore. A few days after meeting Cotton, Thompson wrote to Poole in prison. She asked if he would meet her. Poole never responded. He died of cancer in prison in 2000. In the years since Cotton and Thompson had become friends, Thompson became and continues to be an outspoken opponent of the death penalty, using her celebrity to talk about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. While she hates the time away from her family, she says, it's something she just feels that she has to do. Maybe she can prevent just one innocent person from being imprisoned or sentenced to death. Maybe through her work with abused children, she can prevent just one child from growing up to be another Bobby Poole. She and Cotton talk often. Ron just calls to make sure I'm doing okay, Thompson says. He is an amazing human being. He has been a real good teacher for me. He has taught her about forgiveness and healing and faith. He has taught her not to feel like a victim anymore. She has also helped him too, lobbying to change laws so that Cotton would be entitled to more than the 5000 measly dollars the state originally offered as compensation. She wrote letters to legislators. She gave endless interviews. Cotton eventually got a settlement of nearly $110,000. Cotton's first job after his release was with the DNA company that conducted the tests that exonerated him. 
He now works second shift for a company that makes insulation. He has bought a house in Mabane, 62 miles of Winston-Salem. He married a co-worker and had a child. In 2009, Thompson and Cotton wrote a book together, Picking Cotton, a memoir of injustice and redemption. They continued to travel together too, giving talks about the way that memory can deceive us. Together, they have successfully lobbied state legislators to change compensation laws for the wrongly convicted, to abolish the death penalty, to revise police eyewitness lineup procedures, and for many other causes. Being the more vocal of the two, with Cotton on her side, Thompson was a member of the North Carolina Actual Innocence Commission, worked with the North Carolina legislator to pass the Racial Justice Act, and has worked in the legislatures of New Jersey, Ohio, Connecticut, and Montana as they have considered judicial reforms. She has appeared on Oprah, 60 Minutes, The Today Show, Good Morning America, 2020, The View, NPR, Diane Reams, PBS Frontline, A&E American Justice, Sundance Winner After Innocence, People Magazine, Red Book, Newsweek, and in other media outlets. Her op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, the Durham Herald Sun, and the Tallahassee Democrat. Her writings have appeared in NPR's This I Believe, the Albany Law Journal, and in other outlets. As of today, Thompson and Cotton continue to speak before a variety of audiences about race, class, judicial reform, human error, and forgiveness. In 2013, she was appointed to a three-year term as an alternate member of the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission, the only judicial body in the United States with the power to free inmates from prison on the basis of the actual innocence. Just in April of this year, Thompson received the 2015 Frank Lee Smith Innocence Award from the Innocence Project of Florida, Inc. in Tallahassee, Florida. How amazing that this terrible ordeal has brought about a great friendship and change for the better. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, kids, that's the show. I just want to take a quick moment to thank everyone for listening and to send a special thanks out to each of our over 1,000 fans on Facebook. Don't forget, though, if you're listening online, it's much easier to subscribe on iTunes or with the Stitcher app. That way, each week's episode will be automatically downloaded to your smartphone and you won't miss anything. Also, Keep an eye out on our Facebook page for an announcement next week about something special Marilyn and I are cooking up for our 10th episode. Audience participation will be part of that show, and it might be your opportunity to take part. Until then, you've been shell-shocked.